Hey guys, okay. So today, with me, I have some things and I'm gonna show you them one by one and then I want you to guess what I'm gonna make for lunch today. Okay, so the first thing that I have is some bread. So, by this, what do you think I'm gonna make for lunch? That's a good guess, okay. Next, I have some butter. So butter and bread. What do you think that makes? <laughs> okay. Now, I have cheese. Butter, cheese, bread. What do you think that makes? Grilled cheese. Okay. And now, last thing I have is a frying pan. So a frying pan with butter, cheese, and, che and bread. What does that make? Exactly. Okay. So... With given all the ingredients, you now know what I'm gonna make for lunch. But before, when I said just bread, it's kind of hard to see what I wanna make for lunch. That's the same kind of thing that the disciples felt when they saw Jesus and he was talking to them. They're like, whoa, what's going on? But when they spoke to him and he explained to them what had happened and told them, their story, and told them his story, they finally understood with all the information what had happened. And then they ate with him, and they saw that he was really, you know, Jesus. So that's kind of what, you know, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, not really, but yeah. So that's what I'm trying to talk about today, is that Jesus had to explain to them everything that he had gone through. He had to talk to them and ask them to, you know, pay attention to what God is asking, pay attention to me ask for forgiveness, and really believe what you see. Believe me because, you know, I'm here right in front of you telling you my stories. That's kind of just the whole lesson is that you, you need to know the full story before you can really understand what's going on. And you need to pay attention to what God and what Jesus ask of us. <laughs> so yeah, and after they listened and had explained, the, had heard the full story, they knew what was going on. And so that's pretty much it. Just pay attention to the world around you and pay attention to what God and Jesus ask of you and pay attention to what they're telling you. And when you do, you'll understand. And things, especially things that are going on today, might be confusing and we might not know what their purpose is or exactly what's going on. But we just need to open our hearts and our minds and listen to what God is trying to tell us. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hi, I'm Mary Frances Harrell. I'm most likely going to Richmond, to um, Virginia Commonwealth in Richmond next year where I will be majoring in lighting design. I've been at Weston for my whole life. I started coming to preschool here and then Sunday school every week. I've been coming to every Sunday school, every small group possible until 2020. We can all agree that, we can all probably agree that the past year has not been the best. It was a hard year of being isolated, a time filled with uncertainty. In Luke 24:37, it says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. The disciples did not know who he was or if they could trust him. Many of us have felt fear and the fear and uncertainty the disciples were feeling after Jesus, were kill Jesus was killed. Now, I don't know about you, but knowing the disciples had fear and didn't know who they could turn to is pretty reassuring. The disciples had to blindly trust and follow Jesus. 
Jesus was killed, and they were afraid of the Romans and other Jews, so much that they locked themselves in a room and didn't know what was next. Then Jesus came and helped them understand what his purpose was and how they were witnesses to that. Locking yourself in a room, not knowing what's next, not knowing who to trust, that all sounds familiar. I'm going to a college where I know absolutely no one. Part of me wants to lock myself in a room and hide, but I have to trust and go forth. I am so thankful to have this community to turn to for support. Without these amazing people in my life, this year would have been a whole lot harder. Youth group on Sunday nights is one of my favorite things about youth. Being able to eat good food, play games, beat up your friends out of love. Um, just, it's all so meaningful. But then also being able to do a full 180 and have deep conversations is also so meaningful. And it's something I'm going to miss so much. And I'm sure all the other seniors will agree. In 2018, our mission trip was with Adventure Surf in Kentucky. We built a wheelchair ramp for a family with a disabled son. On the second day, I was assigned to be the site leader. Every day, a different youth was given leadership to be in charge of the youth and adults. This was my start of journey. This was the start of my journey of stepping into uncomfortable situations. It's also where I found my love of power tools. I had to use the blueprints for the wheelchair ramp to figure out exactly what to do. This experience taught me to ask questions when I need help and gave me confidence in my leadership abilities. Working to raise awareness about child hunger through 30-hour famine has also given me opportunities to be a leader in the youth group. Since eighth grade, I, along with a few other youth, have helped Emily Robbins plan the prayer stations. The 30-hour famine has been a big part of youth, and both Riley and I have done it all six years. I am so grateful for West End. Having this community to support me has been very beneficial. In eighth grade, my grandmother passed away. Emily was a great support system for me, and I am so grateful for her. I know how blessed I am to have a wonderful, supportive group of people from youth and the church as a whole. Being pushed to become a more confident leader has helped in so many ways. The church has taught me how to stay strong and be confident. I feel that because of all these experiences I've had, I can be a leader and show God's love. I have been a member of the Missions and Outreach Committee for two years. I have grown in my love of service and social justice. Being an activist and standing up for what I believe in is a big part of who I am, and I thank Weston for helping me grow into it. Going to Pride with our church two summers ago was my favorite thing I've done my entire time with Weston. Being there and showing God's love to all was so meaningful, not only to me, but to so many people there. I still remember the conversations I had with complete strangers that always ended in tears. While not everyone in our larger church agrees, I am proud to be part of West End that not only says that we accept all, but we act on it. There is a lot going on in this world. Some beautiful things, some really hard things. Being part of the church is sharing God's light and love. Have you locked yourself in a room? I challenge you to think where you can open your hearts and your minds to God's love in the world. Hi, my name is Riley Verner. I am graduating from Hume Fogg and I'm going to the University of the South. So. I have been thinking a lot about love language recently. Oh no, the teenager talking about love. 
Don't worry, I've only got five minutes. Love language is a specific way someone responds to love. A doctor by the name of Gary Chapman was the first to divide these ways into five categories. Physical touch, words of affirmation, gift giving, acts of service, and quality time. And to clarify, love language applies to all ages, genders, relationships, just like any other language. It can be used between romantic partners, coworkers, family members, friends, enemies, frenemies, the list goes on and on. I don't know what possessed me, but this idea of love language has plagued me for the last month. Maybe find out your love language popped up next to the Zodiac compatibility quiz or Harry Potter house test I'd taken five seconds before. Pisces and Gryffindor, by the way. Or maybe it was that feeling of isolation I'm sure many of us have experienced during this pandemic. Our virtual senior year, plus college applications, and worst of all, limited browsing time in bookstores is not conducive to deepening one's relationships. Now the problem, first figuring out my own love language. Physical touch. Well, I'm about as cuddly as a pincushion, so that's out. Words of affirmation. As I've already established, I'm a teenager. I barely know what's going on in this brain, much, how to, much less how to articulate it in a way that's coherent and affirmative. Giving gifts. Likewise, I'm also broke. Acts of service. This one was difficult. As a socially awkward, introverted, former dependent, 18, adulting, yay. Going out of my way to do something for the people I love was hard. Acts of service can be anything from saying, I love how you can laugh at yourself, or lending someone a sweater when they're cold. Pre-pandemic, obviously. But on my own, being active in this language felt the equivalent of daydreaming in your car, letting your body know what to do, but then realizing you're about to merge on the interstate. I realized the only time I provided service intentionally and consciously was with this youth group. That leaves quality time. Self-explanatory. I realized it best suited me. And at the same time, it didn't because for months I didn't see a single friend from school. I love my family, but you know, family. And I'm introverted, very, very introverted. I recharge alone. I like my space. I really like my space. Quality time became a lot harder with the global pandemic keeping me from seeing my friends by choice and enjoying the time with the people I could see, if not by choice, then by circumstance. My love language had all but become a dead one. So without a pleasant balance between lack and overabundance of quality time, I resorted to something of which many of us can relate, a quarantine project. What was it for you? Soap making, bread making, gardening, please shout out. I don't want to be the only one talking right now. No? Crochet? That's impressive. So I tried my hand at something I think probably was commonplace. I uh, adapted one of my favorite books into a screenplay that I sent out to a voice cast of family, friends, and classmates, compiled their recordings into hours worth of dialogue, and now intend to animate it. Yay. Okay. Unfortunately, making a movie in the 20 square feet of my twin bed had to share my last two brain cells with a mental roller coaster that is college applications. I would type the same information over and over. Name, Riley Verner. Birthday, March 2003. Social security, 3.1415, got you. Each clack of the keys, chipping off a piece of my soul. Well, after sitting so long in one attitude, I finally got to the college admissions essay. 
The prompts varied, all with a similar theme of what changed for you in high school and how did you react to it? I thought back, what could possibly have happened that changed my senior year? Maybe one thing came to mind, but my wonderful Vanny professor neighbor quickly shot that down. Everyone's going to write about COVID. An old fart like me isn't going to distinguish one I got depressed during lockdown story from another. I want to know about you. But that means I'm going to have to use more than two brain cells. Wait. Okay, maybe this sounds counterintuitive, but I wrote about my movie project. Yes, it was born out of the nothingness that was quarantine, but it evolved into something bigger than I was suffocatingly bereft of things to do and would rather die from imagination than boredom. From that nothingness, my project became a reflection not only of how I was feeling, but what I missed, what I cherished, and who I was as a person. As a writer, one of the best pieces of advice I've worked by is show, don't tell. For the college essay, I couldn't just say, this is what I did, look how creative I am, and be done with it. I had to think, why of all things did I choose to make a movie? And thinking about this, I realized it was because of how I respond to life, how I respond to things I love. Ever since I was little, I've been immersed in stories. From my dad and me playing Dora and Boots, hiking trails of the, of the Smoky Mountains, to my mother reading me Harry Potter chapters in character before bed, to my dear friend Michael Williams appearing as a guest speaker for Storytelling Summer Camp. These memories are cocooned in warmth and love, and for some reason the smell of chicken nuggets and crayons. My love for creativity was born from these moments. My exploration into my own creativity was nurtured by Kirk McNeil and Marty Gilbert and Martha Ann Pilcher and the Four Story Theater crew. And my faith was indistinguishably entwined with week-long summer musicals and memories of wrestling goats and popping water balloon babies at ranches in Arkansas. And then came that time of doubt, that fear of snapping out of the daydream, being jolted out of the muscle memory, and seeing the cars flying past your rearview mirror as you run out of lane. I don't know what triggered the doubt. I remembered it maybe happened a year after my confirmation. I remember feeling almost like waking up and noticing all the bad things that happened in the world. I thought, why would such a benevolent God allow such awful things to happen to the best people? God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. Well, she couldn't handle what he gave her, what he threw at her. You can't catch a bullet. And that's when I found my faith again. A rocky, uneven, sometimes invisible, Indiana Jones Last Crusade-style foundation of faith. But I chose to take that step. And the next, I put my blinker on, floored the gas, and got on the interstate. I hit a couple Nashville-worthy craters, I mean potholes, but I did it. I became aware not only of the patchy asphalt and the semi-trucks, but of the people flashing their lights letting me over. If you haven't guessed, I'm not a fan of driving. I'm not particularly good at it. I hate that I'm bad at it. I try to get better. I practice. I get mad when I fail to remember where I'm going or if I go the wrong direction right off the bat. I was mad at God. I was livid. Sometimes I still am. And I was mad at myself. How could I be worthy of the God I'd lost faith in? Of the God that I didn't know if I still believed in? Did I even care? Did, even, did I even believe or did I tell myself I did because I feared the consequences otherwise? 
and that was my faith. I was a socially awkward, introverted dependent. When my parents went to church, I went to church. When they dropped me off at youth small groups, I went to small groups. I did as I'd always done, participated. Except this time, I was aware of what was being said. I picked apart the highlighted bits of the bulletin before the congregation read aloud in a single voice of bold letters. I knelt at communion and dissected the meaning of the phrase I'd always heard before the clergy placed bread in my hand, before the grape juice was set upon the altar rail. And I hated it. I was going through the motions and not feeling like I should. And I wasn't going to tell anyone. It wasn't their faith. It would be an inconvenience. It would be irrelevant. My journey is my journey. And that was my faith. But in those times of introvert bliss, where I was tucked in the window nook upstairs listening to rain, or buried in the quicksand equivalent of my room, I looked back on those times I was going through the motions, when I was thinking alone, kneeling with others, when my friend's bread disintegrated in juice and we pretended like she had something to put in her mouth anyway, when I thumped my fist to my chest and exchanged peace signs with the youth choir across the pew, when our mission trip prayed between sea of stars and a lake of skies, when we ached and itched from busted fingers, sunburns, and muscles we didn't know we had. And I realized that was my faith too. I realized in the time I spent with people, whether we were building a wheelchair ramp or mulching a garden, those were the moments I didn't pick apart. I didn't dissect. I didn't disagree with what we were doing because what we were doing was for someone else. We were talking to someone through the language of service. And I wasn't mad because I was happy with those I was with. Those, through one love language, I found comfort in my own. And through that connection with people, I found a subconscious connection with God. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, touch me and see. Why do you doubt? Not how could you doubt? It's all right. If you need reassurance, if you need proof, touch me. Look at me. Touch what? Look at what? I don't see him. He does not stand here before me. Therefore, how can I touch him? That's not my faith. That's not my language. It doesn't have to be. In their joy, they were disbelieving. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to understand, to listen, to respect. These are far from synonymous with to agree or to be the same. Dr. Chaplin, the guy from the beginning of the sermon, categorized the languages of love not to help a teenager waste three minutes on a quiz, but to better strengthen the, the communication of a relationship, to help one figure out how best to show one's love by speaking to them in their language. I don't have to see my God. I don't have to touch him. He knows the way I love. I love the precious moments. The way he grins to himself, the way her blush blooms across her nose, the way he, all he has to do is give me a look and we bust out laughing. Quality time is the language I speak. I am seen in love with that time. I am touched by the love of others. This is how my faith reaches me. And yes, I'm angry. I'm devastated. I'm grateful. I'm jovial and everything in between. That is my faith. Is it yours? Does it have to be?